Hey, thanks for joining me on Two Kingdom Tuesday. I've got something I think that is pretty darn cool. Super nerdy, but cool nevertheless. Stay with me. So, um, usually we're into our frame versus client thing, but I'm just going to interrupt that broadcast to bring you something that I've just uh, finished reading, um, a dissertation that you can get online. Um, and so, you know, maybe that interests you and I just want you to know that you can actually access it. It was sent to me by, um, my potentially super soon to be supervisor guy. Um, but, um, and he, and he just wanted me to interact with it and see what, what, whether it would be relevant to what I was thinking. Indeed it was, but anyways, you can get this thing online. It was uh, a dissertation for the university of Stellenbosch, which is, uh, uh, a good university in South Africa. And, um, I mean, for theology, it'd just be like a university. They've, they've gotten pretty liberal, I think, but uh, they're, they're just right up there with academia. And um, anyway, so if you go, the guy's name is Joost. Uh, that is the South African pronunciation. So let me just make sure I'm spelling this thing right. Um, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Um, okay. So his name is... Simon Nicholas Joost. <laughs> there we go. And uh, the dissertation is called Recovering the Kelvin of Two Kingdoms, a Historical Theological Inquiry in Light of Church-State Discourse in South Africa. Now, uh, the reason why that's of interest to me is that I mean, obviously, you've got the Kelvin Two Kingdoms thing going on. Um, but I've always thought South Africa is like the case study for this sort of thing. Um, I, I suppose I always thought in terms of a one kingdom view for South Africa. I mean, it is the classic sort of neo-Kyperian gone wrong uh, thing in my estimation. I had never thought to, you know, even process what a two kingdom theology might look like for South Africa moving forward in its post-apartheid uh, democracy at this point. But anyways, that's what this um, this dissertation is all about. It's like 400 pages, but honestly, it's a page turner. There is the small possibility that I feel that way because I'm currently also reading through Augustine City of God, which uh, let me just say is not a page turner. Uh, man, that is hard work. Wow. I'm only on book five and it feels like I've been going for all eternity on that one. Um, and so in comparison to that, this is just, man, it's riveting. Um, so you can get it, you can read it. I'm amazed it's not been published. It's just so, it's so great. He writes so well right throughout the whole um, dissertation. He deals, uh, he obviously, I think he might have studied at Westminster Escondido for his MDiv or something uh, before heading over to Stellenbosch to do his PhD, but I don't know much about this guy at all, except that he knows Van Drunen and he knows all the, the guys that, um, you know, we like on this show and uh, interacts well with them and is super, super excited about them, obviously. Uh, you know, you've got, I mean, he mentions all the the stuff, you know, Daryl Hart, Matthew Tuninger, it's all in there. Uh, it gives great summaries of everything out there. So just if you're interested, I'm pretty sure you'd find this amazing. Um, it's a free book at the end of the day. Um, if you're from South Africa, well, um, I mean, Dude, this is crazy interesting. I mean, this is like the history of South Africa 
relating to to Kelvin and um, and then how that then relates to the one kingdom problem and the two kingdom solution. So, um, you know, I know we do have a couple of listeners from South Africa, um, and that actually is growing quite a bit. So maybe I should say a few hundred right now. But um, there are those guys. Um, who are currently obviously interested in, in two kingdom theology? If you're listening to to this uh, this podcast, and so you know, here we go. Here's a resource. Check it out. Um, I'll give you a quick, like, super. I mean, I haven't planned anything yet. I haven't sort of planned a summary or anything like that. But I'll give you a real uh, rough and nasty summary, and just a few thoughts uh, that come to mind uh, with regard to my initial impressions um, of this of this dissertation and what he's saying. And it, it interacts well. I forgot if I actually did do a podcast uh, episode on Tuninger's uh, reading of Kelvin and Two Kingdoms. I hope I did do that. Uh, if not, I will follow up with something like that pretty soon. Um, but uh, Tuninger just put out a, a, a dissertation as well, and that got published. And um, that's all about Kelvin and just making sure we understand uh, Kelvin, uh, from a different perspective to what a lot of uh, neo-Kyperians out there would have you believe, he, um, you know, he he said about theocracy and whatnot, and uh, and so you know he was very he carried on Lutheran tradition in many ways. He did, without a doubt, have some sort of a doctrine of two kingdoms, um, and so what's interesting about let me just kind of use what I want to hit just in this um, brief. Um, episode, I want to just quickly say a little bit in in addition to that, uh, which I think I've said already about Kelvin and the two kingdom idea, just extracting you from some of Eustace's thinking. Uh, and uh, I think then just as a result of that, um, it would be crazy not to mention South Africa just in terms of its quick history. And, and if you're from South Africa, hopefully this will be just a, a help to you. But if you're not from South Africa. The reason why, I mean, it would be, have equal relevance um, to you in the way that, let's say, for example, I don't know, the the whole Puritan experiment has relevance uh, to me in that, you know, it is also a great case study or even the, you know, 18th century um, slavery uh, spirituality of the church, Hodge issue. Um, that's another big case study. Even if you're not intertwined in the context, it, it, these are little periods in in history where you've seen the two kingdom thing really just get tested, and um, or at least uh, if if you you know if not uh, on display directly, you know, with the doctrine of spirituality of the church as it was. Uh, in the States, um, then the opposite was true in South Africa. And you see why if you lack that doctrine, it just goes crazy on you. Um, and so it's, it's sort of a negative example of why two kingdoms is important. Um, and so, you know, basically, just to start off here with, um, with Eust's insight on um, Kelvin, which I th- he was essentially in agreement with Van Drunen. So Van Drunen basically argues that there is a lot of two kingdom thinking in Kelvin, um, just kind of what I mentioned a little bit uh, earlier, in that uh, he, he pretty much took on that Augustinian tradition and pressed on with it. Um, you know, Luther sort of uh, really took it right down to that whole issue of justification and law, gospel, um, and uh, maybe did get, go a little too far in terms of, I don't know, just the more I'm getting into Luther, the more I'm realizing not only was he quite inconsistent with the doctrine, 
and hadn't systematized it, you know, quite in the same way that Kelvin did. Um, he also maybe went a little bit too far for what I'm comfortable with in, in that he, you know, the, the kingdom of God, uh, the redemptive kingdom, uh, was really an entirely uh, internal thing, uh, the, the, the reality of our justification before God, and anything external, including the church, uh, would fall under that, that sort of temporal common kingdom. And, and so, you know, that's typically not how a Reformed Two Kingdom guy thinks about it. Um, Kelvin is much closer in that regard, in that he institutionally understands that the church is um, certainly different from the state. And um, he definitely did not go along with the idea that, um, uh, the, you know, the theocracy, uh, theocracy, what am I talking about? The theonomist, the theocracy idea would, would advocate and that you basically, um, you know, you need to apply you know, in, in his case, Geneva, that they, they, you know, the theocracy guys would advocate that they needed to apply biblical uh, mosaic civil laws. Well, Kelvin rejected that idea very explicitly, thought it was foolish, and all that sort of thing is clear. Um, the the he certainly had every op- opportunity to do that stuff, but uh, he saw a distinct difference between church and state and uh, the two kingdoms, the the common grace kingdom and uh, the redemptive kingdom. He saw it in terms of the institution of the church. So that's all there in Van Druden. He brings that out. Um, Tuninger very, I think, significantly agrees with him because he, um, you know, he's basically... It just done a lot of pretty cutting edge, uh, edge stuff on, on him at this point and argued that Vandrina is largely correct. So this this would have come, um, <clears throat> it's interesting, at the end of this dissertation that Joost writes, um, you know, he sees all of that stuff from Tuninger in the pipeline and um, probably hadn't read the whole thing or hadn't read his finished product yet. But, but he comes up with a slightly different angle, which I thought was also helpful and perhaps a little bit more realistic. He um, he basically says that uh, you know it's right to think of Kelvin as having some two kingdom doctrine, um, and where where Tuninger would talk about Kelvin really getting messed up in his in his praxis or in his uh, application of that doctrine in a Christendom, which was admittedly confusing, and you know, and there are there just undeniably awesome things that, that Kelvin does that just wouldn't square with any anyone that believes in two kingdoms now. Um, and, and, and so Tuninger says, well, his theology really is consistently two kingdom, but he messes it up or he, he's inconsistent in his practice or he's too much enslaved to his time. Um, and, and I suppose the one difference would be that Eust says, um, yeah, fair enough. That's definitely happening, except that, um, probably even at a theological level, um, he is closer to, uh, his own version of two kingdoms that really is, uh, going its own way. And uh, the way he describes it is really helpful. He uh, will talk about a um, uh, Luther's doctrine blended with Galatius's doctrine. Um, now, this is uh, where it gets interesting, and I'm just going to say a quick word about this. Um, I might come back to it on Father Friday or something like that, because um, this is actually quite a difficult um, little letter epistle thing to get hold of. Uh, but I've got it. And um, it's basically from Pope Galatius to uh, an emperor named Anastasius and uh, to do with his power as an emperor and where the church fits in. And it's it's famously known as, it's a famous epistle. Um, and it's called, uh, uh, well, at least uh, it's, it's, it's 
given rise to what's been called uh, Galatius's two-sword doctrine. There is a, a, a spiritual power um, in the church, and there is a temporal civil power in the government. And he spells that out pretty clearly. So it's without a doubt a two-kingdom doctrine. Uh, there are some differences to what we would think, or even what, la- what Luther later thought about, um, or what Augustine even thought about before that, um, in that there was this, you know, you almost think about like where you've got Augustine and he's thinking about the mass of humanity um, being divided up into two clear cities and uh, and really you've got the, the the kingdom of the devil versus the kingdom of God, I, I suppose, is is the best way to think of Augustine as, as they overlap in, in this life in the world. Um, whereas with, with Galatius, he um, he thinks of it more in terms of a, a Christendom. Uh, yeah, you have one church state, but in this church state, uh, you have two very clearly defined spheres of authority, and uh, the one sphere is is the church, and the other sphere is um, the uh, the civil. In this case, the emperor. Um, so let me go ahead and just read this. It's very quick. Uh, but it's it's super maybe just to get it on on, on the record here because uh, it's super difficult for you to go and follow this up. Um, I don't even know where you'd get this right now without finding a, a really ridiculous little library. Um, okay, here we go. There are two powers, he says, uh, to August Emperor, by which this world is chiefly ruled, namely the sacred authority of the priests and the royal power. So there it is, right off the bat. Uh, he says, of these, that of the priests is the more weighty, right? So there you see a leaning to what will later happen with Pope Boniface in the 1300s. By the way, this is in the, what, like, I think it's 490 or something like that, 494, yep. Um, And Pope Boniface in the 1300s will will come along and and that's where it goes, you know, classic. The Pope has more authority than than even the emperor and that's, you know, putting the church right there. And going for that's where it just starts getting crazy, but this is this is a much more balanced, much more nuanced thing. He's leaning in the idea that uh, the the spiritual side has more weight to it, but uh, that weight really resides in its spiritual matter rather than uh, in its ability to you know talk over the emperor um, or have more authority than the emperor di- emperor directly. And you'll see this toward the end. He says since they have no. Uh, the priests have the more weighty job, right? Since they have to render an account for even the kings of men in the divine judgment. So that's why it's more weighty, not because they have more authority. It's very important. Uh, he says, You are also aware, dear son, that while you are permitted honorably to rule over humankind, yet in things divine, you bow your head humbly before the leaders of the clergy and await from their hands the means of your salvation. In the reception and proper disposition of the heavenly mysteries, you recognize that you should be subordinate rather than superior to the religious order, and that in these matters you depend on their judgment rather than wish to force them to follow your will. Okay, brilliant. Uh, Next, if the ministers of religion recognizing the supremacy granted you from heaven in matters affecting the public order obey your laws, lest otherwise they might obstruct the course of secular affairs by irrelevant considerations, 
with what readiness should you not yield them obedience to whom is assigned the dispensing of the sacred mysteries of religion? Accordingly, just as there is no slight danger in the case of priests if they refrain from speaking when the service of the divinity requires, so there is no little risk for those who disdain, which God forbid, when they should obey." And if it is fitting that the hearts of the faithful should submit to all priests in general who properly administer divine affairs, how much more is obedience due to the bishop of that uh, see which the Most High ordained to be above ill others, and which is consequently dutifully honored by the devotion of the whole church." Um, so, I, you know, there we go. A lot we could say about that. And like I said, we might cycle back to that. But hopefully that just gives you a quick little glimpse. And why that's relevant is because he's saying, look, you, you've got a clear temporal authority. You've got a clear uh, spiritual authority, uh, the two swords, as it were. Um, yet you've got one people group, the church and the state are kind of thought of as one people, you know, the, a Christendom. And uh, this is different to what Luther um, obviously w- w- was trying to advocate and then he he wanted to see a um, a sort of a, a smaller uh, group of those justified who are in the redemptive ki- kingdom um, and and then they share a commonality uh, with this physical life and temporal life with with um, those who uh, must dwell you know who who perhaps have not been justified but you know it's all it's 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 uh irrelevant whether they're part of the state or not it's really the matter is more reduced to to their uh spiritual entry into the redemptive kingdom uh which is entirely spiritual again for luther now again kelvin comes along and he you know being the systematician that he was I think what you says here is really good. He says he, he makes use of all of these ideas and probably comes up with a continuation of the Lutheran doctrine now more institutionalized, you know, less less uh, Gnostic, for lack of a better word, in that he's not, he's not trying to uh, create this sharp dualism between the the outer life and the inner life, although it's definitely there to some degree in Kelvin. He's saying also in the church, there is this reality of the redemptive kingdom that is being institutionally uh, uh, manifest. So so that's certainly overlapping with today's uh, reform to kingdom approach. But then, <coughs> excuse me, uh, he says also that, you know, it, it, what, what you says is that he's probably blending Galatius's doctrine together with that. And um, and coming up, therefore, with what we now think of as the, let's say, magisterial two-kingdom doctrine, which uh, it just seems to fit right, because Luther did see, I mean, just think of Geneva or think of uh, the, the Christendom thing that he was operating in. Um, certainly, he uh, would have seen one entity of people that needed to be you know, they were all confessing at some level to be part of the church. Um, and uh, they all needed to be pastored. And so I think it's fair to say that he drew uh, from Galatius's two-sword doctrine in that he did see these two separate institutions, but he he saw them um, as as sort of relating to this one entity of people, which is, is again, very different to what we are talking about today when we're uh, thinking about Reform Two Kingdoms as a pastor, you know, of the of the of a church, um, I would agree that when we go to church, take we hear the word preached, 
we see the sacrament administered, um, that is a manifestation of of the kingdom, as it were. It's a um, an, an institutional representation of the kingdom. Even um, that's all fine and well. Um, and as a pastor, um, you know, I'm I'm very aware that I'm I'm operating at that level in the in the sacred realm. But I am in no way thinking about. Um, that the, the 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 population of New Zealand as being coterminous with my, you know, the membership of Grace Net Community Church. Obviously, there's um, there's a they operate in in quite different spheres. There would of course be an overlap with the common grace realm and the need for uh, obedience to the magistrate um, when it came to that overlap. You can imagine just like a little Venn diagram overlap uh, with the members of of the church that I pastor, and their citizenship uh, in the world. So that's, again, it's just kind of, you have that Venn diagram overlap rather than two circles that are coterminous, and that's really the difference. So I think that's really um, uh, a very helpful way to to show where Kelvin is, um, drawing from church history, but also uh, a way to show, you know, you can see obviously it's different at that level. It's going to be worked out in a different way, and you see that in Kelvin. But um, it's also very, very similar. You know, all you're really doing is playing around with that circles and uh, those two circles and their overlapping positions. And so, um, you know, I find that very, very helpful in just placing Kelvin and uh, and seeing that, you know, those. that's why he's such a, you know, um, a figure that gets pulled in all these directions from all these different teams, because uh, in many senses, uh, he did support either by his practice or by his thought, the theology, uh, either the Neo-Kyperian or the, the Two Kingdom doctrine. But I do think it's, it's fair that Van Drunen points out that, uh, you know, he did extend, I mean, the Reformed two, two Kingdom doctrine now must be said to come from Kelvin's thinking, um, because it's not directly from Luther. It is a little bit from Kelvin. Um, obviously, when you know, we're, we're mapping it out now with a kind of biblical theology that's much more sophisticated than, than Kelvin had at his disposal. Although you'd be surprised at, at, to see what Kelvin was saying at that point. It's quite amazing. I mean, he had some two-age eschatology going on there. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, there were elements of republication in, in his thinking, uh, in the way that he thought about Israel. So it was, tuning his um, dissertation is really helpful on that point. Um, and all of this to say... Uh, that this is what uh, Eust is now bringing out. He's saying, listen, okay, that's the backdrop for thinking about Kelvin and his uh, application or, or the application of his thought to the South Africa um, situation in apartheid via Kuiper. Now I realize that I've been talking for a while here and um, I'm kind of only halfway. <laughs> in terms of what I wanted to say. So maybe what I should do is just stop it right there and then we'll pick it up um, next Tuesday just thinking about how this 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 Calvinist uh, way of thinking as drawn out by Kuiper as they're pulling on this galatious side of things and the coterminous overlapping um, state and church um, how that gets developed and gets applied in South Africa in terms of apartheid South Africa. And then what you says is that, um, you know, what's interesting is that you have, um, you know, obviously the case study of showing how that goes wrong, but in terms of getting rid of apartheid, you've also got another one kingdom mess going on there 
and uh, it's almost overcorrected the problem and it's it's now drawing on a different kind of Kelvin and um, and you know he's he's just um, advocating that you really you really only have what you need if you start thinking in a two kingdom direction and I think he's right and to the degree that that would help South Africa in its extreme sort of situation right now it, it will help every government without a doubt if they could or at least every Christian uh, you know, uh, attempt to advocate a good Christian government. So I think in that sense, uh, it will be helpful to think about. So again, uh, hopefully that's not too nerdy. Hopefully that's great. It is super interesting, but um, hopefully uh, that is something that you were able to track with. And uh, hopefully that is something that interests you if you are thinking about where Kelvin fits in and um, how this starts to um, work itself out in history. All right, good. I'm going to drop it there. Chat soon. Mm-hmm.